just got to say, when I was in seminary, they didn't prepare me for things like that. <laughs> All right, on the back of your bulletins, I want to call attention to a couple of things. Um, you, you already know about VBS, but I would like to say an extra thing about VBS. You know, surveys are done all the time, national surveys about why people come to church, why they stay at church, why they leave church, those types of surveys, which are very helpful for us. We read them, and consistently, one of the top uh, three reasons that people leave, somewhere in the top three, one, two, or three, depending on the survey, is when people come, parents come, they quickly form an opinion on how important their children are. Things like... um, is the children's area maintained? Something as simple as that. If it's dirty and run down, then they know that the children honor is important. What's the curriculum like? One of the reasons we put so much energy into all of this, we being everyone else except me, uh, Mark and Annika and a bunch of other people, some of you out there, thank you by the way, is because we want the parents to know that their children are important to us. It's just as important to the parents as it is to the children. Uh, When they walk through here tomorrow, again, if you haven't been here, uh, you might stop in sometime this week in the morning and just see what it's like to have kids everywhere coming out your ears. It's fabulous. Energy just oozing out the windows. And we want the parents to know that we take this seriously. So I would encourage you to pray. Uh, As God reminds you, pray all week for this week. It is one of our most powerful ministries that we do. We have a whole bucket of kids coming who aren't in, uh, they don't come from church families. And this is uh, the one time they get to hear about the Lord. And so just be praying all week for them. Please do that. Down at the very bottom, you have the um, church retreat. This is the last time we are together in the building until after the retreat. All right, now think about that. It's the last time we're together in the building until after the retreat. Next week, we start the amphitheater. What time next week? 9.30. 9.30. If you come at 9, we really would like it because you've got work to do. 9.30 next Sunday. And then we're all summer in the amphitheater. And then the very next Sunday when the amphitheater ends is our church, all-church retreat. So the next time we'll be together in this building will be after the retreat. So keep praying and thinking about it. You'll hear more about it um, as, we, as we get into the amphitheater. Okay. A couple things I want to pray for this morning. In fact, let's just pray, and I'll just lift them up, and you can learn about some things while we're praying. Father, I uh, would like to lift up Stephen's ceiling. Lord, thank you for um, that he made it through surgery well. And Lord, um, pray that you continue to help him with this pain, help his ACL and the other things that they're repaired to heal. Uh, Father, guide him through the, the rehab, rehabilitation process, because I know he's hurting quite a bit, and uh, watch over him. Pray, Lord, continue to pray for the Glasgow's as Julie has said goodbye to her father. Lord, help them in their time of grief. Um, Lord, I know she's coming back soon. Be with her. Be close to her, Lord. And uh, show yourself to her in new and fresh ways during this time. Father, we continue to lift up to you, Father Michael, uh, at the Catholic Church. And Lord, just trying so hard to fight off uh, such an aggressive and horrible brain cancer. Lord, the reality is without you, he doesn't stand a chance. So we pray, God, that you would intervene and heal him. Watch over his flock in the meantime. They love him dearly, Lord. Uh, They're so grateful for him and what he has done for them and the way he loves them. So restore him to ministry completely. Uh, 
And Father, we lift up Lord of the Mountains Church right now while they are in the middle of pastoral transition. Lord, uh, we all know what it's like to be in churches where we're changing pastors. It's a very uncertain time, and it's hard on people, and it hurts people. And I pray that you would protect that church and bring them a, a pastor that you have in mind, whoever that would be, someone who would share your love for them and uh, your care for this world. Thank you, Lord. And then, Father, I'd like to conclude by, by lifting up our country during our election year this year. Lord, we'll all vote our conscience, but our faith is not in surveys and statistics and all of that. Our faith is in you. Uh, bring us the person that you want uh, to lead us, Father. And I pray that you would take advantage of this opportunity, this election year, to restore the hearts of those in our country that have wandered away. Restore them back to you and just shift their gaze, Lord, back to you and your Son and uh, your goodness. We pray these things in your Son's name. Uh, amen. Okay, today we're going to conclude our series on um, the Servant King out of Mark. Um, We're going to be looking at Jesus' coronation. Have you ever witnessed the installation or the coronation of a great figure on TV? Uh, Some of you perhaps have seen it with our own president. From every four years when we uh, inaugurate our own president, Maybe you've seen the coronation of a king or a queen somewhere along the way. Or the birth of a prince is, a, is accompanied by lots of pomp and circumstance and attention. Uh, today we're going to look at Jesus' coronation. But first I want to show you some pictures of different coronations that have occurred throughout history. The first one is a coronation. This is a portrait, a picture of a, a painting, excuse me, of Queen Victoria in 1838. Now, as we go through these pictures, I want you to notice the pageantry and the, the fine dress and the order and the, the wonderful, wonderful things that are happening here, the, the symbolism that they use to communicate different parts of their responsibility. So this is a painting from 1838. The second one is another painting of the coronation of Alexander in Russia. This is in 1883. Notice the, notice the dress, the expensive dress and you had to be somebody important to be invited to this. The third one is actually a picture of the coronation procession of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. And you can just imagine, if, you, uh, if you're curious, you can go to YouTube and see the actual, the whole, the whole coronation process is about two hours long where they crowned her as queen. And the fourth one is a coronation recently in 2013 of Willem Alexander in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, they kind of have a tradition where uh, his mother was the queen, and when she felt he was ready to assume the kingship, she abdicates the throne, and he becomes the king. It happens on the same day through the signing of documents. It's a fascinating uh, video to watch. And uh, her parents before that abdicated when she became ready. And so this is, again, you have to be somebody very high-ranking and special to be um, brought into these coronation um, processes. So we're going to talk about the coronation of Jesus, what we typically think of as a crucifixion, and take a look at it from a different perspective. But before we look at Jesus' coronation, we need to look back at an earlier passage. Now, you remember last week, we talked about the way that Jesus revealed himself. When the time came, he was told everybody to be quiet because uh, you risked your life if you said you're going to be a king. Uh, because kings don't like it when young people say, I'm going to be a king. So he kept telling everybody, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And so then he, when the time came, he revealed himself in very unusual ways. He started talking about his death. That's the way he revealed himself. Now, 
I don't expect any of the people that were crowned in those pictures, their opening words were talking about their death, how I'm going to die and what's going to happen to me. But that's what Jesus did. And so it teaches us something about him, but it becomes a model for us on what it means to live a holy life, to really have our priorities in order. By the way, that's why we take holiness seriously here at our church. How we live both as children of the king and as slaves reflects the truth about Christ to our culture. We'll say this over and over again, and I hope you remember it, that uh, we are God's primary way of revealing himself to a lost and broken world. No billboard out there with flashing lights, no airplane flying overhead with a banner. It's us. It's our lives. So is it actually important that we do all things without grumbling and complaining? Yeah, it is. It really is. Because if we grumble and complain, we're just like the world. We have nothing to say to a world that doesn't understand what it's like not to do that. And so our very lives and the way we live our lives and live out our holiness is really important in the world around us to people that we care about. So today what I would like to do is kind of bring this concept of holiness together with what it means to be great. And the world, by the way, has not done a good job of bringing these two together. Uh, But we would like to explore that today. And then we'll look at how Jesus lived this out with his own coronation. So we're going to back up and we're going to look at a passage in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to start in Mark chapter 10. But first I'm going to read a short quote from... Uh, one of the New Testament scholars that I place a lot of high value on, what he has to say. What comes to mind first when you think of the crucifixion of Jesus? What comes to mind when you think of the crucifixion of Jesus? Excuse me, I'm still recovering from the flu. Yes, I actually had the flu. So uh, perhaps you think of going to church. Perhaps you think of singing well-known hymns. Uh, There's a green hill far away or... When I survey the wondrous cross. Perhaps you think of a picture or a statue. Perhaps you think of the cross. Maybe from your tradition you think of the crucifix. Reminding you of the sorrow and suffering of Jesus. And somehow bringing consolation and hope into your own sorrow and suffering. That's something we put a lot of energy into. is helping us understand how the life of Christ connects with our life, don't we? That's important. Perhaps you think of the brutality that could have dreamed up that way of killing people. The crucifixion was the most vile, heinous, brutal ways to kill somebody. It only lasted about 70 years in the history of the world. Even the Romans finally outlawed it. It was way too cruel and brutal. Or the similar brutalities that face uh, the world today. People around the world that are undergoing extreme hardship, brutal hardship. Um, some for the sake of the name of Christ. Perhaps you have an image in your mind of the crowds at the foot of the cross. We've seen pictures, paintings, things like that. Some of them are mocking Jesus. Some of them are in tears. Perhaps you're picturing yourself. What would you be like if you stood there with him? Would you be one of the ones who mocked him? Would you be one of the ones who cried? Uh, I don't think there's an easy answer to that because uh, we didn't go there. But I do wonder that sometimes. What would I have been like? At that time, Mark's going to tell us the story of how Jesus was crucified. And he wants us to hold in our mind several pictures which will give us the full meaning of the scene. For Jesus himself, but far more than Jesus. We do want to understand what Jesus went through. But what does this mean for Israel, for the world, and for ourselves? What does it actually mean? 
And it's more than what we think. Now, Jesus, in this chapter here, we're going to back up just a little bit. He had just warned the disciples of what was going to happen to him. Listen to these words in Mark 10, 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Now listen to those words. These are what the Gentiles are going to do. Let's don't sterilize it too much. I really want you to begin to get a picture of what's about to happen at the coronation of Christ. They mocked him. This is all public. They mocked him. They laughed at him in front of everybody. They spit on him. They flogged him. Flogging is not just simply a beating. That's not it at all. They would put glass and things in the whip so that when they actually beat him, they would shred his body. That's what a flogging is. Flogging was actually common in the world up until recently. British Navy used it through the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries for sailors that got out of line. Flogging. They would flog him, and then then they would kill him at the end of the process. Three days later, he will rise. So he just warned the disciples of what's going to happen to him. Now, you think that that would be the most serious thing he could say, and that would get them started on a, a journey of, wow, really? Income. James and John. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I just love that. Jesus, do for us what we ask of you. I, that's often how I think about when I go to God. God, I really want this. Okay, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? They replied that one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Or when you come into your glory. <laughs> they, they didn't make the connection between what he just said. He just said, this is what they're going to do to me. And they said, okay, okay, but when you come into your glory, we want to sit on your left and your right. They're thinking like the pictures that we saw. They wanted to turn Jesus' journey into a march to glory. In their picture, at his coronation as the king, they're going to sit one on the left and one on the right. Because you see, when the Messiah comes and assumes the kingship of Israel, he's going to build a powerful army, defeat the, uh, Rus- uh, the Russians, the Romans, and he's going to restore Israel's greatness. Okay, that's what he's going to do. And uh, Jesus had a very different take on what was about to happen. The very next verse, verse 38. You do not know what you're asking, he asked. He said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Of course we can, they answered. I love that zeal. Yes, we can. And he said, okay, well, you will drink the cup that I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. That is going to happen in your life. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now listen to that language right there, because we're going to come back to this. To sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. These places of honor have been reserved to those for whom they have been prepared. That immediately raises the question, who is it? And what does that preparation look like? To be seated at honor on his left and his right at his coronation. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant. I bet so. 
<laughs> Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so. That's the way of the world. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. You have to become a slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus, uh, for Jesus, the cross is not just a difficult episode to get through on the road to happiness. It's far more significant than that. The cross is precisely God's only way of dealing with worldly power and authority. All that's wrong in our world and broken. There is no other way. The cross was God's way of dealing with everything that's wrong with his creation. It's not simply about forgiveness of our sins, although, hear me correctly, that is a key, a very important part. It's the death of Christ on the cross that brings about our forgiveness and our atonement, but it's far bigger than that. And if we fail to see how big it is, then we don't really understand the point of the coronation as king. It's God's way of putting to rights all that is wrong with his creation. Everything. Everything. From injustice to pollution to evil leadership, you name it. You fill in the blanks. Poverty. The cross is God's answer. You see, it challenges and it subverts all the human systems that claim to put the world to rights. We hear this over and over again. People come to power over and over again. And many of you are old enough to have seen it many times. But in reality, what they end up doing is just putting a new set of humans on top of the pile. That's what happens. And we hope for a better outcome next and a better outcome after that, a better outcome after that. Arguably, we have the best justice system in the world in our country, and yet it fails us, doesn't it? Every one of us has experiences of that. Arguably, we have the best opportunity of all the nations for people that come that are poor to make something better of their lives. And even still, we have our own poor. We fight over whether or not we should have welfare systems and how many people should be on welfare systems. And what we're missing is the fact that there are people that need welfare systems. We have people that are really hurting out there that we need to help. And that's going to go on and on and on. Talk to our benevolence committee. Talk to the people that run our food bank. People are constantly in trouble. And, and this, is, this is really good, what we have. If you've never been to a third world country, you should go sometime. And even still, it's not good enough. You see, James and John, they're a picture of us. Given the same scenario, I think every one of us would have responded the way they did because we misunderstand because we have a broken view of pride and glory. The pomp and circumstance in those pictures we saw, that's how we naturally think. And Jesus is going to turn it on his head when you look at what he did when he was crowned king. He did something very different. The cross challenges all this. It calls it into question. The things that we see in the world that make sense to us as good and right. He's going to do, he's going to say, nope, we're wrong. <coughs> the cup that he refers to here in verse 39 when he says, can you drink the cup that I drink? 
I believe, is a cup of God's wrath spoken of by Jeremiah. God's going to pour out his wrath. You see, in the Old Testament, God's wrath is what happens, for example, when foreign armies come and they destroy God's people. By the way, when the people turned against God, sinned against God, and followed other gods, you know the most common way that God responded? Earthquakes and floods, famines. Armies are another part of it. That's how God revealed his wrath, that he was not happy with the people group that decided, to hell with you. And they turned in a different direction, literally. He wasn't happy with that. The wickedness on the earth, and Israel in particular, is what brings God's wrath to bear. And what's amazing is that in contrast to every other world system, Jesus is going to take the full brunt of that wrath on himself. It's a mystery. The longer you serve Christ and the more you ponder this, the less you understand it. That the Son would take the full wrath of the Father. Why? Because of His love for us. That's what it means. Are you willing to drink the cup that I drink? Then He said, how about the baptism? Are you willing to, to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? I think the baptism looks back to Jesus' own ministry when he accepts responsibility to be the Messiah or when he accepts responsibility to suffer in a very excruciating and publicly humiliating way. His upcoming death is now understood as a form of this baptism. In Romans 6, Paul uses that as a means of helping us understand what baptism is all about. You see, Jesus would go below the waters of death in order to bring about forgiveness. That's what he would do in order to change the world. So Jesus understood that he was going to drink that cup. He would carry the full brunt of God's wrath. And not only that, he would die excruciatingly for our benefit. And he still chose to do it. That's amazing. He knew his mission. I'm going to read to you a verse, a passage, a quite long one that many of you know. It's out of Isaiah 53. This is in a series of passages which we call the, the suffering servant or servant of Yahweh passages. This is what the servant of God does when he comes. So I'm going to start in Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But just as there are many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured. Now listen, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form was marred beyond human likeness. You couldn't even recognize him as a man. So he will sprinkle or bless many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed their message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew before him like a tender shoot, like a, dry, a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Now think about these pictures that you saw of the coronation, the various coronation ceremonies. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and very familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, 
you could just picture the brutality that he went through that you just want to turn away. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, crushed, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. He took what you should have experienced. This is the heart of the Christian message. And by his wounds we are healed. We all Like sheep, we have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has called uh, the iniquity, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Now think about that. Paul's words, do all things without grumbling and complaining. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet where was his generation? Who of his generation protested? One of his best friends denied him three times. Nobody stood up and said, this is wrong. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Do you hear that? Let me say it a little bit differently. It was the Lord's will to crush him instead of you. There's no great ruler that would take this on. None. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, for the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He will justify many, that's us, and bear our iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession, made intercession for the transgressors. You know what that means? Everyone who's sinning against him and hurting him, he prayed for them. That's what it means. He prayed for them. And what's the last thing he says in Mark 10? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This right here is the coronation of Christ. It's a, it's a terrible, it's an amazing, awesome passage which expresses violently what he went through and gratitude that he did. You see, the servant of God, the servant of Yahweh, would have to die a horrible death as a slave. How could he be a king and a slave? That's the heart of the servant king imagery. How could he be a king and a slave? You're one or the other, but you're not both. And we have a Savior who decided to be both. The heart of his mission is to serve. This is what it means, by the way, to take up one's cross. Just before this, he said, anyone who wants to follow me must take up their cross. What was the purpose of the cross? One thing, and one thing only, to die, to be crucified, a gruesome death, 
You sure you want to follow him? Be careful how you answer that question. I hope the answer is yes. But it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. So, what did Christ's coronation look like? How did he become king? How did he come into his glory? We saw the, pink, the four up there. I want to show you a video. Uh, this is out of the movie The Passion. Yes, it, it is a little bit graphic. I get that. But I really need you to understand the difference between what Christ's coronation looked like and the rest of the world. If you've not seen the movie, The Passion, I would encourage you to see it. This is the world that they lived in. This is an insult to us because we have such a high view of human dignity and how to treat people. But this was their world. Crucifixion was only there for about 70 years, and yet Christ chose to come at that point in time, knowing that that's the death that he would endure. Now listen to Mark chapter 15, the king of the Jews. Mark chapter 15, verse 25. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. It was it, The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. When you read all through here, you'll understand. Mark wants us to understand that he was crucified as the king of the Jews. This is his coronation ceremony. This is it right here. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. His own leaders were doing it. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him also heaped insults on him. You see, as a Jew, Christ was willing to accept the fate and the destiny of Israel because he was their anointed representative. This is what, for Mark, it means to be the servant king. He understood that Israel had failed and he would have to assume responsibility. And that's what he, exactly what he does. He takes upon the responsibility not only for Israel's failures, but the world's failures as well. The violence, the corruption, the hostility, the very ways that we betray and hurt each other. He takes that responsibility on himself. 
To strengthen the point, Mark reveals that Jesus was crucified with two revolutionaries on his left and his right. You didn't get to be crucified by being a common criminal. This was reserved for the very elite, the worst criminals of society. Those are the ones who were crucified. By the way, it was never the elite or the wealthy. It was the most heinous people. So here he is as coronation. Who's on his left and who's on his right? the worst criminals in society. They were revolutionaries. That's who got crucified. People that were guilty of sedition. Kings didn't like it when a young person comes along and says, I'm going to be the new king. They're done. Put them on the cross. The death that Jesus died properly belongs to violent violent criminals, people who do heinous things. Now we understand his comments to John when he says, and we get to discover right here who it is for whom this has been prepared. Who has the honor of being with Christ at his coronation? The most vile people on the planet. And by the way, that's us. Where were John? Where was James? They weren't there. The crucifixion scene opens and closes with mockery. It includes the Romans, but it includes everyone else, his very own people. This is what it means to be the servant king. Do you want to be a leader? Then you have to become the slave of all. That's what it means. Are you willing to put others first? Are you willing to do that? Here's an easy question. Are you willing to die for others? Let me ask the more difficult one. Since God has not asked most of us to die for others, Are you willing to live for others? That's far more challenging. Because that calls into question all of these passages that we've been talking about for three years. Are you really willing to live a life where you don't grumble and complain? Where you don't cause strife and dissension? Where you don't gossip? Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word that brings encouragement to the one who hears. Are you willing to pay the price? Trust me, it's the hardest thing you will ever do. It's far easier to complain, isn't it? And you pick the sin. You can fill in the blank, whatever it is. It's far easier to live that life. You willing to take up your cross and do that? I'll read one more passage, and I'll conclude with this. 1 Peter chapter 4. We've said several times that uh, um, Mark was probably recording Peter's words. So they're Peter's memoir. So if we look in First Peter, we find some language that complements what he's saying. So First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. This is at the end of Peter's first book. Listen to what he says. My dear friends, do not be surprised, don't be surprised, at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange is happening. You know what he's implying? This is normal. Paul goes so far as to say in Philippians 1, this is an act of God's grace that you suffer. I reject categorically that God, when you become a Christian, you no longer are destined to suffer. Both of these great apostles said the opposite. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Did you hear the language? 
Rejoice when you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. How many times have we said that? Don't be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. Don't be ashamed. You serve the one true living God, the King of the universe. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. You willing to take up his cross, your cross, and follow him? Careful how you answer that. Father, thank you. Thank you for... First of all, not abandoning us when we turned away from you, but choosing to crush your son instead of us. Thank you, God, for knowing our plight, for knowing the situation we're in, knowing that we, have, we stand no chance, none, if you don't step in to help us. Thanks for sending your son to help us. And Jesus, there are not enough words that we could say to thank you for what you did. In your name we pray, amen.